This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It is the search for love and the journey for love, and we, we're fascinated by it because we thread it back to our own lives and how we would be or how we would feel or is that the way we love and there's a lot of shared experience to be got. That is Network 10 executive producer Hilary Innes. And this is episode 219 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Oh, I love singing along to that. Thank you, Toe Hider, for my music. And thank you for being here. Episode 219 of the show. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is my podcast. Each week I have a conversation with someone that hopefully makes you go, huh, oh, I never thought of that about before. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Huh. Basically. Yeah, but that, that doesn't really look good on a byline or an iTunes. But yeah, that's basically what I'm up for. Uh, today's show is with Network 10 executive producer Hillary Innes. But oh, she's so much more. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Uh, Hillary's magnificent, and I'll tell you a bit more about her in just a moment. Big thanks to everyone that shot me through uh, an email this week. It's always great to hear what you think of the show or how you're enjoying the show. Send Osher email at gmail.com. That's it. I read them all. I'll write back to pretty much everybody. Uh, lovely to get the photos of what you're doing while you're listening to the show. Killer. Absolutely killer. So many people. And it was great. I sent every one of them on. I sent every one of them on to Peter Fitzsimons. Uh, so many people sending photos through of what they were doing, listening to the Peter Fitzsimons episode about Australia. They're going, that's it. I'm joining the Australian Republic movement. <laughs> he got such a kick out of it. So thank you very much to everyone that, that sent me the, uh, those um, I even got a, I got, even got a boomerang. Someone shot me one on a, on Instagram. They sent me a boomerang of them at the gym, which was super super cool. Uh, but yeah, uh, love love that you uh, do that and help me get to know who you are and help us all get to know each other as people that all make and listen to this show. I guess we're a community by now. Yeah, I should probably start a Facebook page. That would be the smart thing to do. But then Zuckerberg will know our names and addresses. <gasps> Let me just take my tinfoil hat off. Ah, speaking of which, <laughs> uh, I did get one email this week that I did want to talk about. Um, as you know, I've been talking on this show a bit about coming off my medication. Uh, I am someone that has a different brain and I have needed medication to get by for the last 11 years or so. Uh, recently, though, in very close consort with my psychiatrist and psychologist and my mentor, we all talked about me coming down off my medication, which I did very, very slowly, and I continue to be off it only under very close supervision. We're in constant contact. We talk all the time. I did get an email this week about someone who goes, I was listening to you about coming off meds, and I feel so great. I'm off mine. Look, and I've just been writing about this for the book I'm putting together, so I, I'm, you know, because I've done it, so I can tell you with the bottom of my heart, you and I both know that deciding 
not to take meds with a brain that needs meds is not a healthy decision. It's as simple as that. So talk to your doctor. Okay? Thank you. I love you. Look after yourself. It's going to be okay. I promise you. Um, getting on the bike is being very useful this week. I've been trying to do it every morning, which is great. Um, trying to smash it out and, um, and just kind of clear the pipes a bit. Wash, wash the brain clean of, uh, of the gunk that gets caught up in there. Big hello to everybody that said hello on Friday the 26th of January. Uh, if you saw on Instagram or on Twitter, I, I marched with about, oh, about 20,000 people uh, from a place in Sydney called The Block in a suburb called Redfern. And we marched through Sydney to pro protest, uh, changing the date of Australia Day, but also the inequality between Indigenous Australians and the rest of Australia, how the financial, legal, educational and health outcomes of Indigenous Australians are, are so extraordinarily worse off than the rest of the population, and partly due in part to policies that were set in place when colonisation began. Uh, do I have an, a solution? No, I do not have a solution. Is what we're doing working? Look, it's not. Has everything we've tried worked? Some of it. Some of it, not really. Um, but I guess I, I, I was marching because I really wanted for us to try and, and work together on just treating everyone in our country with as much dignity and respect as everyone else. And that's about it. Uh, a big thanks to Nakia Louie, who's been on this show before. She was kind enough to link me up with her mum, Jennifer, who's brilliant. Uh, I, so I didn't have to march alone. That was great. And it was just fantastic to talk to Jennifer the whole long, whole length of the march. And she was telling me about life in Mount Druitt. And she works very closely in the community there. And we talked about the history there and the, and the treatment of uh, Indigenous Australians in the inner city and the outer suburbs of Sydney and the policy around movement and ownership and all kinds of things like that. It's uh, quite eye-opening. But that's only half of it. Uh, the rubber really meets the road. Uh, when I start putting photographs of what I was doing up on Twitter and Instagram and getting the commentary from people who are uh, a bit triggered that I would go and do something like that. Not that many people commented when you compare it to how many people saw the pictures. When you look at the metrics and go, well, a few thousand people saw it. This Of those, this many thousand people clicked like. And then there's a percentage of people that just freaked out. Um. And one remark that really hit me, and really hit me hard, and, you know, it's pretty racist. I, I sent a photo of a sign that said, not happy Jan 26. Funny. Okay? <laughs> it's funny. That's good. But in that photo, and this photo taken back up of Abercrombie Street in Sydney, and there were thousands of people in this photograph. And a bunch of people commented going, well, where are all the Aboriginals? Why is everyone in the photograph white? A, you are judging people on the colour of their skin. You don't know someone's ethnicity or the makeup of their heritage. And two, the last time I checked, I didn't need to be a part of a minority to care about how that minority is treated, particularly in my name, with taxpayer dollars. I don't have to be a woman to push for women's rights. I didn't have to be gay to push for same-sex marriage. It is Australian to care about each other. And that's all I'm marching for. 
that we care about each other. Yeah, it's frightening because it means we have to change something. But if we do it right, we'll be changing it for the better for all of us. Wouldn't that be nice if we could work together to be a part of that? Yeah, it's really complicated and scary and it's full on. But wouldn't it be great if we worked together to try and make it happen? There were many messages of support, and that was really lovely to see. But the other stuff was, wee, it was heavy. Heavy, heavy, heavy. Needed to pound myself stupid on the bike the next day just to kind of wash all that energy out of my system. I do love my bicycle. Uh, but yeah, it was a great day, and um, it was great to talk with so many people on the day and talk with so many people and engage with so many people who were kind of a bit bothered and, and people online would start angrily and then I try and respond to them, you know, in, in, in a way. And then, you know, honestly, one or two people kind of managed to go, oh, never thought about it that way. And that's it. That's all we're looking for. Just try and maybe undo that rusted on bolt a little bit, just enough to maybe, maybe let a different way of thinking kind of seep in. Just try and imagine what life might be like if your life wasn't yours and if it, if it might, what life might be like for another person in our society who doesn't live the way you live. That's it. That's, that's, that's it. Big thanks to everyone that also shared about this show this week. So many people, thank you so much for either getting on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or wherever, um, just pointing out hey, this episode, a lot of people listening to um, some episodes about running. I've got a few episodes about running and, and an episode about the Sydney Skinny. Someone sent me a photo of that they, they're committed to doing the Sydney Skinny now on March 11th, which I'm going to do and I'll see you there. Um, it's really great and I'm really grateful that you would share the episode because the more people that share about this show – the, the more downloads I get, the better guests I can get, the better shows you get. And when you get a really great show, then the person that you introduce it to go, gee, I'm glad you turned me on to that show. Boom, everybody wins. Uh, so that'd be great. Um, particularly this this show, this episode. If, if there is someone in your life uh, who, who, you know, I have a constant goal on this show wherever I can to try. I'm just really, I'm trying to interview as many powerful women as I possibly can on this show. And, and with that in mind, if there's anyone in your life that could do with hearing the story of an incredible woman's rise to dizzying career heights, um, this episode might be a good one to uh, share with them. Facebook, email, text, talk to them, whatever. Um, I'd really, really appreciate that. So let me tell you about my guest today. Hilary Innes is an executive producer at Network 10, where she oversees the shows, many shows, but definitely shows that I work on, including Bachelor, Bachelorette, and the soon-to-be-seen Bachelor in Paradise. Hilary is a legend of the Australian television industry. We talk all about her time working closely with Ray Martin in the heady days of the midday show on Nine, and yes, she tells the famous Normie Rowe, Ron Casey punch-out story because she produced that segment and she tells the whole story here, which is, you've seen it on so many like countdown shows and whatever, but you might not have heard the story behind how that segment came to air. It's, it's a pretty brilliant, nerdy broadcast media moment if, if you're listening for that sort of thing. Hillary went on after working at, uh, with, with Closely With Ray. She went on to be the head of entertainment at Nine. It's a big gig. And from there, left the network to become head of entertainment at ITV Studios Australia. So she went, which is, that's a production company that makes massive shows, such as I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and of course, the humongous The Voice. So she went from making a bunch of huge shows, she went from making a bunch of huge shows from different production companies, 
at the network to making a bunch of huge shows for different networks at the production company. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, coming back to the broadcast side of things, Hillary is now an executive producer at Network 10, where she oversees and steers from the network side of things various shows in their lineup, including the ones I work on. Full disclosure, I have to say this right now. I've got to check my bias. I adore working with Hillary, and you can hear it as we speak. She's just she has an incredible depth of knowledge and experience, and her career is truly remarkable, both in the legacy of the shows that she's made and the time that she's been a major influence in Australian television. Hillary also has a magnificent sense of style, and the team I work with on Bachelor, and uh, they are always commentating, oh, my God, did you see Hillary's jacket today? Oh. <laughs> Hillary is. She really knows what she's doing. Now, when we recorded this, we did record this in December of 2017. She and I had just wrapped up Bachelor in Paradise. So she and I do talk about that a bit. And as you can tell, we're both pretty excited by it, and for good reason, which you'll hear. Now, there is another side to Hillary, which I'm very, very grateful she opened up about. At the same time as having a career that anyone would envy, at home, Hillary is dealing with her partner of over 20 years slowly succumbing to multi-system atrophy which is a degenerative neurological disease, which is fatal and has no cure. I'll let Hillary describe what life is like for her at home, but listening to the way that Hillary talks about their relationship, even in the face of this extraordinary challenge, it, it will move you beyond measure. I'm so grateful that Hillary came to my apartment back in December so that we could have this conversation. Enjoy this conversation with Hillary Innes. Thanks for coming, Hillary. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for being it's here. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm stoked you can get on the, we can get on and have a, have a chat because, you know, you have a, a really interesting career that I would like other people to hear about because you can't be what you can't see and it's important for people to hear that careers like yours are possible. <laughs> basically. Yeah. That's basically the premise of it, which is, you know, fun. That's great. You come to join me today from, you live up in like northern, northern part beaches. of Sydney. Right. Did you always live there? I've, well, um, I have for about 20 years yeah. now. But, you know, as a young person, I lived all around the inner city and did yeah. that sort of, um, that life. Yeah. Uh, but then as a, as a child, I lived all around the world. Yeah. My dad worked for Gillette um, from, based in London. And yeah. then I was born there, actually. I'm a dual citizen. <laughs> Better not sort of head on into Australian Parliament at the moment. <laughs> you and me both. I'll never be so, Prime Minister. I'm an Aussie, but I'm a, a POM as well. Mm. But um, So we lived all around the world. Yeah. Um, in Hong Kong for a long time. I sort of went to school. That was interesting. Primary school? Yeah, primary school. Wow. Uh, the what US. was that like? Hong Kong was really, it was great because it was, you know, full-on British col colony Pre in the 60s. Still, yeah. You know, Still very much imperial, colonial. It's exactly, vibe. yeah. We went to the to the you know British school, but there were, I guess, some wealthy Chinese there. It was privileged, you know. You mm. were a privileged group, but it was very interesting just in terms of having being in multicultural environment, very multicultural, and um, you know we had people working for us who were locals, but um, I remember my mother really socialised with them, so I got to meet and mix with a lot of uh, Chinese kids as well. And it was interesting then when I came to Australia in the 70s on the North Shore, of, you know, on the North Shore, 
how um, prejudiced people were because I'd lived in Hong Kong and yet I was a Caucasian kid and they'd say, why aren't you yellow? And it was really, I found that fascinating. I didn't get it because I'd lived this life where we'd mixed with a lot of different cultures and been, you know, encouraged to. Um, anyway, that was interesting because Australia in those days was really, it was very, you know, there was a lot of racial prejudice around. I hate to break it to you. There still Most is. Most of those people are still alive <laughs> it, there and still they still is. vote it's, and they yeah. haven't changed their minds. <laughs> it was just interesting as a kid hearing that and, and, and scratching my head and going, I don't get it, what are you on about? Did you, you know? talk to your parents about it? I think I would have mentioned it and they were, you know, just kind of, oh, well, you know, it's um, they haven't lived the life you have, yeah. you know, you've been lucky, that kind of thing. True. Where in the States were you? Uh, we were in Boston. I was pretty, I was a little kid then, so I don't, I mean, I remember skating on a lake. Yeah, I was going to say, it's <laughs> At the end you of didn't the, remember that because it's but freezing. I, <laughs> freezing. It but, is you know, freezing. And, and then we came, we went back to England, then we ended up settling here. My mum's Australian, so mm. there was a natural connection. Yeah. And after, I guess no doubt after after the, the freezing weather of Boston and the intense humanity crammed onto Hong Kong. Yeah. Gee, Sydney's well, on the beaches well, it wouldn't be right. so bad, would it? <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Intense humanity's right. I mean, we lived in a really beautiful house on Deepwater Bay, which, if anyone knows Hong Kong, is a lovely area. And up the road, there was a family on our walk up the hill. There was a family living in a cave and, you know, a mum and dad and about seven kids. So we, I saw all that and we chatted with them and we, you know, we were very aware of what, of, of the sort of polar yeah. The spectrum of life and that after a typhoon there'd be a whole you know the the mountainside would be wiped out in terms of the houses so you know that that was a, it was great actually having that um quite a you know interesting childhood traveling in mm. that sense and having that perspective that i don't know how much you can take it in but just kind of having that perspective like oh we live in this place and there are people that and, you know, my um, a brother of mine lived in China and, and people who live in other parts of the world, it's, it's no big deal. Uh, it's, in fact, it's part of the culture to have people help around the house, you know, and that's, that's a part of it. But not to be able to see only a couple hundred metres from your front door that not everybody has that is um, it's something that in this incredible society that we have in Australia, unless you go looking for it, it's a bit hard to see in the suburbs uh, that, you know, are around you to get that perspective. I guess, you know, people might look online and see, you know, those who are different and they live their life differently from them. But mm. having that perspective, you might not have been able to process it so much as a kid, but it would have been an interesting thing to go through. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think there are places outside of Sydney. Oh, yeah. You know, Claymore's one. I mean, there, there are suburbs where... It's terrible. The poverty's terrible, you know. Um, generations of people haven't had jobs. I mean, we, we live in it, but we're, we don't actually see it. Mm. Anyway, I could go on. Oh, no, no. Well, that's what this show's all about, Hillary. <laughs> it's raving. I could <laughs> go on. I think I, I, might make change, sure. I might change the name of the show today. Oh, but you don't want to hear about that. In fact, yes, I do. Yes, I do. So mm. high school was up on the northern beaches as well? High school was in Taramara, so on the North Shore. So that's where we, we, we ended up on the North Shore when we right. came to Australia. Um, and I was there until I got to a point where I couldn't handle it. And I went to a very progressive school. Um, Kyron College, which was in Balmain, and that was just for years eleven or years fifth and sixth form, eleven and twelve. It's a bit of a schlep from where you were living down yeah. in Balmain. Yeah, I used to get a 
get into town with my dad and get the ferry across and Not a bad met way a whole lot school. of kids from different, you know, parts of Sydney actually. Again, mm. it was good because they they came from everywhere, people mm. that didn't fit into the sort of system at the time, I think. What did not being able to handle high school look like for you? Oh, it was just, again, I think it goes back to that North Shore. And I don't want to put, there's a, that's a, you know, the, it, it, it's a part of Sydney that has a diverse population. But at the time, um, I found it very, a bit claustrophobic and um, I, I wasn't happy um, I found it a little bit cliquey or something and the kids that I was mixing with, so I never really fitted in. And so um, I put my hand up and my mother listened, thank God for my mother. And I ended up at an alternative school in the 70s and uh, that was pretty cool, run by a bunch of artists. No uniforms? No uniforms. Teachers by their first names? Teachers, teachers by their first names, yeah. You know, people having a few... Few drinks here and there, a couple of cigarettes hanging out of the mouth. You know, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, not that I was smoking at that point, but yeah, very um, just just cool, chilled yeah. out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, interesting times. In a time before, uh, I mean, is that the sort of thing where suddenly you're hearing bands you never heard of before and reading about oh, all that? Yeah, yeah books you never that. thought of and films you'd never known existed. Yeah, exactly. Because because there were artists that essentially were the board of the school, and that's really well known Australian artists, the Black Blackmans and the Coburns. Um, they were. It was very oriented to creative people, mm. and I guess I came from a family. My dad paints, my brother paints, my grandmother painted. There's a lot of artists. My mother was an actress in London. Um, so that really suited me. I loved it, yeah. actually. Yeah. So what's the path in the, in the 70s for a young, a young woman, you know, um, out of an alternative school? Is it, oh, I'm just going to have to go to arts somewhere or I'm going to go to England? Like, what was it? Well, the path was, you know, I really wanted to be an artist. I really wanted to go to art school and I, so I got in. I also got into Sydney Uni and I, I was the oldest child and the oldest child um, halo settled around my head as I made that decision <laughs> and I thought, I should go and get a degree. So I did an arts degree. And uh, something, you know, you'd, I, I, I wouldn't say I have regrets because everything happens for a reason. I mean, I do believe that. And I think you, you know, as you, those experiences, whether you know it or not, enrich your life and you actually become a better, stronger person and all those things. But um, I, would, I still think back and think, what if I'd gone to art school? What if I'd been a painter now? Because I was really, well, painter, photographer, you know, just would have explored a lot of the creative arts, visual arts. Yeah. Um, but I went to Sydney Uni, and, which was a cool place, I have to say, at that point. Um, and it helped me grow up a bit, as it does, doing an arts degree. It was very much the period of feminism, you know, lots of marches with <laughs> feminist marches through the campus. And um, there was a lot of rabble rousing. I think Labor would have been in government at that point. Uh, and Whitlam, it would have been Whitlam years, yeah. yeah. And um, I, I had a good time. I did anthropology and English literature, and I thought I was going to be Margaret Mead. So <laughs> I focused on another, <laughs> on another path. Yeah, and uh, that was, you know, and again, like I said, it helped me grow up. Feminism in the late seventies would have been terrifying to mainstream Australia. 
Absolutely. And I think it would have been terrifying to some generations that have come since as well. Yeah. Um, some of the people I've worked with uh, since in television, the next generation, you know, I think who kind of pushed back on that in a way, although it's coming around again now as it always does. But, yeah, I think they would have been terrified as well, just really quite um, – well, it was dynamic. I won't say aggressive, but it was dynamic. It was all burn the bra and, you know, I mean, it's, it's cliche, but it was very uh, – people were yelling and, and, you know, very up in arms and uh, not that I was at the forefront of that. I was like a, you know, a year one student watching and just sort of thinking, oh, well, I may as well walk along behind them. <laughs> yeah. A lot of blokes, though. I have to say there were a lot of guys at the front of the marches. I always thought that was interesting. Well, it is, I don't know what to say about that, it's that, I, I mean, I have a, I know, and I'm thinking about it a lot right now because I'm, I'm, I'm writing this bloody memoir about, you know, growing up in, in Brisbane as a, you know, the only woman I knew that wasn't a school teacher was my mum. Yeah. I had one of four boys. I went to an all-boys school, you know, and so my attitudes about women and towards women were informed by that experience and the boys school was very much the the sons of uh prominent lawyers property owners and and ranch cattle people uh from queensland um and you know the attitudes towards women and particularly women and indigenous people uh were permeated my vernacular permeated my attitudes and it wasn't until I kind of got out around 18, 19, I looked around, I was like, oh, hang on, like, everything I know is wrong. <laughs> it was, you know, so to have had that experience as a, as a young person, I, I, you know, it took me a long time to figure out, you know, I would have been one of the people freaked out by the march back then because mm. it was frightening and scary and different to everything I'd learned. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird. <laughs> how did it, you know, how did it steal you or, you know, inform, you know, what did you learn then that might have been new for you that you were like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realise that as a woman this is, you know. In a way, because of my background, I, I don't, I think it just reinforced the fact that I felt, you know, we're, we're all the same, we are all the same. Mm. And no matter what race, no matter what sex, where you come from, um, and that's how I've been brought up. And I just, it, for me, it was really, it was, it, it was normal that women should be on an equal footing. And I guess, and I, I, I read my, you know, my radar was, even though some of it was quite 20 something university, you know, aggressive or, um, excitable, uh, that it was right. And they were just trying to make a point and, you know, it would all, it, it would. It had to be said, obviously, yeah. um, because there was an inequity there. But um, you know, it's funny how even now, in 2017, and we still, well, times are changing very rapidly, as we know in TV. But but we're still looking at a lot of underrepresentation with women mm. in many areas. Although it's changing and it's good, and I think I just feel good for the next generation that. Yeah. Um, that young girls are being brought up to know they can do what they want and have jobs that or careers that guys who are sitting next to them in primary school yeah. might want, you know. It's interesting, you know, because, you know, because I'm, 
I, I remember what was the pop culture or the cultural references towards feminism and, and, and women at the time and you would see it then but also particularly like through the 80s when TV didn't have much to do they'd rerun things from that time and you look at it and you're like how did that ever even get commissioned like what was that one particular show Kingswood Country <laughs> yeah like how did that show even get written you know some of the attitudes towards women towards um towards immigrants in australia it's like it's just you know fair enough it was a parody i guess but it was like it was it permeated everything and the advertising particularly you don't have to look back at the advertising print ads you know that sort of thing yeah true would have been would have been full on so when you 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 got this anthropology you know thing uh, going on where, where you're like, all right, so h- how do you find a career out of an arts degree? I guess that's the alternative question, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. It, isn't it just? Yeah, how do you? Well, that's the thing. You, you don't really. Yeah. And um, I was a bit, I would say, not a, a bit unsure of where I wanted to go. I, I always loved art and I was always going to love art. But, I mean, it wasn't because I'd walked away from that. Um, I thought, well, I need to use this somehow. And um, I did, I loved children's television. And at the same time as I was doing my degree, I watched a lot of kids' TV. And there, was, and there was one show on at the time. It was the beginnings of Sesame Street around that time. And I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was inventive and magical and uh, an inspirational show, you know, um, coming out of a, a, m- amazing brains, to be honest. And so I was really, I loved it. And I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to actually... I think that's a good thing to do. It's creative. I could do that. <laughs> you know, young people, what do I, where do I go? What do I do? It's, it's sometimes it's such a hard mm. period and hard to know what to do. Anyway, I, I actually went out and um, just introduced myself via CV, the old very much in the mail then, created a really, I thought, a really interesting visual um, CV, which didn't have much in it because it was only an arts degree <laughs> and a little bit of, you know, a few jobs here and there on the side to get through being a student and took it around and sent it to all the, the sort of heads of television or heads of children's television at the ABC and Channel 9 um, and I ended up landing on my feet, not in kids' TV but at SBS. So that would have been probably the early 80s by this stage. I did have a, a, a slight deviation in market research which I hated because I knew I knew a few people in advertising through my father and so I got you know just as dads often do get their kid a, a bit of a work experience and, and a job comes out of it but that didn't stick so that was a short you know months I'm talking um so I ended up at SBS TV in the 80s and um that was actually a great experience. Would have been early in SBS's. It was early history. in SBS's yeah. history, and they were down at Milson's Point, um, the old CIA building. Everyone used to say, "I'm sure it was." Anyway, that was the yeah. <laughs> down at Milson's Point with a beautiful view of the harbour. And anyway, I got given a gig. Um, I have no idea how, but by a, a veteran war journalist, Don Simmons, and he saw something in me, and he gave me a job as a reporter on uh, a series of documentaries called Close Up. And it was the first, um, you know, the first sort of foray into reporterless. So I was a reporter, but I, I didn't, I wasn't on camera. So I just, you know, um, turned up, asked the questions, learned how to put it together 
And I had um, some very kind people around me who helped me as I had no clue what I was doing. <laughs> that's it. That's, but what you've said, what I've done, I think this week I'm publishing episode 210 or 211 next week, you know, so people are going to hear this later. So obviously you'll figure out when you recorded it. But the amount of times I speak to people who have, you know, careers that they enjoy, it's like, I don't know, I, I just went out and got it. I went out and just let people know this is what I want to do. I put it out there. I put myself out there. And um, Just to rewind for a second, we were talking about this the other day uh, on set. Uh, it was, you know, you and I have both been away um, doing a production for a number of weeks um, where there's been a lot of, uh, okay, get ready in five minutes. Hang on, rain's coming. Don't do, do anything for an hour and a half. Okay, ten minutes, wait. Oh, stop, waiting, holding. <laughs> you know, so a lot of time to talk. I was talking about when I used to be, when I was unemployed, I would sit and watch Sesame Street. I would watch Sesame Street uh, when I was 19 or 20 years old. And I found it musically, I found it extraordinary and interesting. As an aside, later on my band, we went to, I got right into the people that were behind the creative direction of the animations and the, and the musical choices uh, on, on that show. And really interesting in who they commissioned to write all of those jingles and all the little animations and all those bits. They were the best of the best of the best composers that existed at the time, you know? Yeah. Um, and particularly because we were going to record and then release a version of the pinball song. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Amazing. Because um, it's in like three different time signatures and it's incredibly intricately composed and it's wonderful. I'll give you a guess. They were very high profile at the time. Can you guess the band or girl group? that did the vocals on that track. Wow. So th that was the early 80s then? The late 70s, late early 70s, 80s. Late 70s, early 80s. So an international group. They were American. Oh. High profile at the time. It wasn't the Supremes. No. That, that was, they were the a 70s, bit early sorry. It was, <laughs> the, the 70s. it was the Pointer Sisters. Oh, the po okay. Yeah. It was the Pointer Sisters mm. that did that track. But that, mm. that carried on, like, because at that point... They had guys like John Zorn, who's this amazing, you know, avant-garde saxophonist and avant-garde composer. They had guys like John Zorn composing these jingles for helping kids learn to count to seven, you know, <laughs> and that they would do that. For me, it, well, we're talking about Sesame Street now. Once Elmo came on board, everything kind of went downhill for me because then it just <laughs> became about merchandising because I'm making a lot of money. Um, but before that, oh, I was just, I'm still fascinated by it. I look up old YouTube videos. Yeah, me too. I mean, I still, whenever I, I mean, I think of the count and I still, yeah. I am the count, <laughs> you know, just, uh, it sticks with you. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant, simple, yeah. clever. Yeah. I loved it. Mm. And the, um, I was, I was very into avant-garde composition and music for in my late teens and early twenties. And, um, there was a, a counting song It featured race cars and it was counting to 10 and it was in 10, eight. It was in 10-8 time, time signature, which is a really weird time signature to play and very difficult. But the composition was just so exciting and so intricate and so weird. And I'm thinking, there's three-year-olds watching this and they have no idea that they're being exposed to this mind-bending musicality. Mm. Uh, and, and I don't know. I don't know if Peppa Pig can rise to the occasion. But <laughs> it's pretty interesting. But I think it goes in there. It's still, yeah. it's still absorbed, you know, um, don't you, by... By those kids, by well, those children. I watched it the first time. Yeah. And then again in my 20s. Exactly. So 
all the levels that are available in there are still you still feel them and it's yeah. I think it it does you still t- you, you learn and I don't know it makes it's it's such a rich show yeah yeah when you were um, starting it at SBS uh, which is an acronym what, special broadcasting service yeah special it? broadcasting service which yeah. was essentially the multicultural channel yeah. here in Australia and I remember we got very excited when it came to Brisbane it wasn't until years later I think 86 I think it came to Brisbane we were so excited because for dad uh, like one hour a week they would show the Czech news and he was thrilled <laughs> yeah. you know he could actually yeah. see people speaking his own language and uh, you know it just has enormous power in a time before YouTube it has enormous power to connect people and make them feel less you know a strange and a stranger in this land that looks and smells and sounds mm. like with the leaf blower out the door um, nothing like um, you know their own their own country did what did you learn in those early days um, that you know you still use today I learned about um would you believe I learned about storytelling and piecing a story together because what I was involved in were half-hour docos at that point on, you know, various social issues. So I did one on a heart transplant patient, one of the early um, Victor Chang um, patients, and then I also did one on sexual abuse, the untold story. How interesting that, you know, it's such a huge... Well, it's it, it's become... It's out, you know. Mm. We, we, it's being investigated properly. We're talking about it anyway, because in those days it was like this, this secret kind of, um, well, this secret activity that was happening that people weren't really talking about. Anyway, I'll in get on to that. Sexual abuse in workplaces. I think it wasn't in workplaces. No, right. it was just out in the community. And yeah. but I was given this job as a very, you know, in my twenties, um, I, I had very little experience as I said so it was about and we and there were no computers then so we did everything on typewriters IBM typewriters you go into a newsroom and that's all you heard cling 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 you know Mm. (laughs) um and everything was transcribed so you go out and talk to the to the you know the guy in the case of the heart transplant patient I spent time with he and his family and then everything you'd come back and your interviews were transcribed I was taught to um cut them all out literally sit on the floor with um, pieces of dialogue cut out and create a jigsaw puzzle. And I would piece together. So six different interviews. How is that story going to be told, um, you know, best with who we had and what we'd done? And literally it was, a, it was you know, a hard, um, what would I say? It was an exercise in creating a collage on the floor. And I'd sit there and just clip and cut and then you know clip sentences out and then join them together try and be honest and true as you are you know to the actual story that you're telling but it was so different to today Mm. but it taught me um the art of arranging and rearranging and looking at the different ways literally very very viscerally very you know um visually and i am a visual person so i really grasped that Mm. and uh, i loved it i thought this is great and um also the fact that different people you and i would have the same experience and we tell the story probably differently um and that that was acceptable so long as you were honest to your subject Mm. um 
So I learned so it's that. It's fascinating, though, that that is the – sorry to stop you. That that, that 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 was the way that you learned to construct a story. Like here, are, you know, people often go, why am I learning how to cut and, cut and scissors in primary school? Well, that's why. Because you're, you're actually cutting the sentences out of a piece of A4 paper, putting them down on the floor, mixing them all around, so you no longer, you know, kind of, I guess, constrained by the – the context of where they were recorded and then going, how can we tell this story? This person here, that person there, it's actually going to be more powerful if I slip this line up here and that line down there, which I guess now you would do on a screen with like Adobe Premiere or Final Cut or something like that. You can move things around. But to have it visually in front of you, lucky you did that arts degree. Absolutely. <laughs> lucky I did. Well, now they, you know, yeah, it's all done. Um, obviously on computers yeah. and you just clip up and string it together. Um yeah. So it's not even – I mean, I was just playing with words. I, I couldn't see how someone looked at that point, Yeah, you know, which is interesting because then you, I, we were probably working on 16 mil. I mean, I was – we when my next job, we were working on 16 mil. We were still in – you know, had had a Steinbeck in the offices. Just, uh, so that's film, uh, which yeah. uh, was – it's made out of gelatin, which is cows, and um, uh, the kind of film I'm guessing you're using was reversal film yeah yeah so it's a sim- very simple like where you would take your old films and take them to the chemist you'd have a processing tank at the station or whatever and so you go and shoot it you it's a, it's a simpler um processing process processing process but then you'd have to scan it in you'd have to do the tele to get it on the video right or you would be would you be editing we edited on, on film, film. so it was literally you know they were splicing and i mean i wasn't the editor but i no. watched him sat there yeah, literally piecing it together. That yeah. was our sort of feature stories on the midday show when I worked there. But there were plenty. I mean, I think 60 Minutes was probably on 16 mil at that point as well, which was the late 80s still. Yeah. Um, but it looks so good. Oh, when it you, looks fantastic. When you watch those old interviews and it's, it is something about the, the, the mm. graininess of the reversal film, um, especially when it comes to documentary storytelling. You know, when you when you get Negus with his jacket over the shoulder somewhere in Africa, you know, you're like, wow, that looks really good. <laughs> you know? yeah. Just digital doesn't do this justice. No, it doesn't. Um, it's not the same. Maybe now it's a bit better because you can bump the colours up. Um, but when they when everybody moved to beta, um, it just it looks so flat. Didn't look the same. Yeah. Depth of field wasn't there. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so. That's an ex- that's really exciting because I've had the benefit and the, the real joy of being in uh, and starting my television career at a studio that or a station that was also just starting, which was Channel V at the time. So there's really something about almost being in a startup culture, isn't there? When you you can really, oh, well, just try it. You know, it's not like this is the way we've always done it, so that's the way we're always going to do it. You can kind of experiment a bit, right? Yeah, you can, and I think SBS. I mean, I was. You know, I can't remember the actual year it started, but say I was there probably maybe five years later. Yeah. Um, but but regardless, I love the fact there are a lot of different cultures there, obviously, as you said, the Czech story mm. you told. But um, we had lots of um, people who could speak multiple languages. They were, you know, um, working in their um, subtitling area and we had lots of multicultural shows, of course, as well. So... We had people who had come from different countries who um, were writers, you know, um, academics, who'd come from different walks of life but brought a great richness to that company, Mm. which I found wonderful. And I was actually there for five years and I was sad to leave, but, you know, I... You, you have opportunities and you move on. And I don't regret that, but I always hoped maybe one day I'd go back there. But, you know, 
I think I have very romantic memories of that time at but, um, SBS too. The next opportunity, was that midday show, the next thing? That was the next thing, midday, yeah. Wow. Channel 9 in the 80s with Ray Martin as the host. And, uh, very serious journo. Serious journo, but but very um, but but a, a very a man of the people, a guy who loves people, who is fascinated and would, loves talking. Will spend time chatting with a cabbie or a, you know, someone in the street as much as he will interviewing a great writer or musician or whatever. I mean, we the people that went through that show that I was privileged to meet was amazing. Yeah. Um, Have you got a drawer of Polaroids somewhere? <laughs> well, I've got some. I mean, it's interesting. So on, on that show, we, the, on location, standing around waiting for the rain to stop, people were asking me that last week and I said I did end up going to some fascinating places with Ray and I ended up doing specials with him some years later. And, you know, we ended up in Koreatown with Stevie Wonder at his studio once um, with all his keyboards, that was phenomenal. Sitting there and he was just playing, what do you want me to play? And he would, was playing 20 songs just at the keyboard there. Um, Madonna's house in LA once, Ray and I were in the lift going up into her sienna-coloured house that the whole neighbourhood in the Hollywood Hills was talking about, oh, how dare you paint a house this colour? <laughs> and um, we just said, hey, we were in this mahogany lift, you know, sort of probably imported from somewhere strange and um, saying... Wow, like the things we get to do. And, um, you know, I'd say working with him, he was as curious and fun a person that you'd, you'd ever want to meet, you know. So that was – I loved working with Ray. It's very special that you had that uh, – that you weren't caught up in it um, at that moment. And that it's incredible to hear that someone who had every right to go, well, of course I'm in a mahogany lift at Madonna's house and of course she wants to talk to me because I'm fucking Ray Martin. <laughs> that he has this <laughs> moment to go – isn't this one? Yeah. That's amazing. Exactly. And that was after all the years he'd spent in New York and, and doing 60 Minutes and stuff. He's still, and even now, he's still out there connected to life now, which I think is, is one of the secrets. Uh, this is, it's, mm. really, it's really special. I mean, as someone like myself having caught up and been the guy who's like, well, of course this person wants to talk to me because I'm extraordinarily important and very good at my job. Um, it's it's nice to hear that someone like Ray, who has still got a career that I wish I could grow up to be, still, um, particularly with the stuff he does around social issues now, um, that he was like that. It's it's magnificent. So the 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 sounds like the so the the, the stuff you're doing at SBS seemed a little more longer form with a slightly longer timeline. What was it like to move to the pressure of the? All right, we've got no show. We need a show. Yeah, the daily yeah. 90, ninety minutes a day to fill of live TV. Well. It was a huge learning curve. There were a lot of producers and we came up with segments every day and we'd sit there and pitch our ideas and sometimes, well, you know, more often than not you'd get them up, but then you'd sit and research them and, and give Ray his, his um, you know, brief and every day sit in his office and, and you'd come in having written an intro for him having written a question line and that was probably one of the best things, best training grounds there was sitting with Ray and working out the through line of the interview, beginning, middle and end, you know, the old things that are important that sometimes are forgotten, I think, um, in, the, in the crazy world of reality television, um, just the basics and why we're talking to this person, what we want to get from it. Um, I'd often have a chance to do pre-interviews with people and 
you know, sometimes people, like I remember once ringing Ernest Borgnine, the actor, <laughs> at his house in LA, and I had to, you know, just have a chat and his wife picks up the phone and so I ended up having a three-way chat with Tova Borgnine, his wife at the time, <laughs> probably wife number few down the track, and Ernie, who was a wonderful actor, you know, very... Um, I can't, don't ask me to quote the films, but still, you know, I'd seen him in Mikhail's Navy, of course. Yeah, I'd grown up with that, but but many amazing, fantastic feature films. Anyway, just things like that where you'd have a chance to chat with people, sit in the green room and talk to people like George Martin was one of my favourites, the Beatles um, producer, and he was just the most charismatic, um, lovely man and I sat for two hours with him, sitting, chatting. I mean, how amazing is that before he went on the show? Wow. Um, so, you know, he was one of my favourites because he actually had just produced Under Milkwood and it was a long playing record, but he'd done it with a whole lot of Hollywood greats um, playing all the fantastic Dylan Thomas characters. Anyway, and he sent me the record set um, because, you know, and people would promise things and, and he actually delivered. The right. next day they got, it got delivered to the midday show for Hillary and I thought... I love you, George. <laughs> <laughs> when you, I mean, he's the fifth Beatle. He's a set. Mm. He is as important as the other guys. Absolutely, I'd put him higher above the. I'd put him up above Ringo. Yeah, I would. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Probably agree. <laughs> yeah. When so when, when take me back to when you were sitting in the room with with Ray. Was he as you were working the questions? Was he uh, informative when he was like, oh, I might word it this way, and this is why, or would he just go, that's a terrible question? Oh, no, he was very collaborative. I mean, he'd always listen, you know. And the thing is, we obviously there was – he had way more experience than me, little old me, but he would say, well, if you really cared about a question and you had, you had to back it up, um, but he would listen to that, yeah, and take that on board or, well, how about we do it this way and then I'll ask that. Or He wouldn't – he was always – encouraging in that sense um he would never say it was a terrible question but he would steer it the way he wanted mm. or or incorporate your idea if you really felt it was you know you'd done your research and it was important so it was you know we over the years um there was trust built and mm. i think i worked on midday for about you know eight or nine years wow every day well, i yeah i mean part of that were his specials at the end of it uh -huh. but um yeah I was there. Uh, was that like a four o'clock, five o'clock start? Wasn't that early? No, because we were on air at well midday. <laughs> strangely, <laughs> yeah. Um, so we would get in sort of at eight in the morning. But right. you'd do all your work for the for the day before yeah. and give it to him. He'd take it home, read it. I mean, he read. He always read books. He yeah. always tried to watch films. He was a great believer, and you must you must have done people the courtesy of that, which is a big call when you yeah. think about how much. And, yeah. and in those days, we had the Roald Dahls of the, of the world on. We had Peter Weir and Robin Williams in the studio. You know, we had all these, you know, Jane Fonda came once, I remember. Amazing, Jane Fonda. You know, we, we had everyone. Mm. Anyone who came through Australia would come on midday. Wow. Um, and Ray obviously had big cred, so they would want to come and talk to him. So it was a privileged time. Yeah. You know, um, we had politicians. I mean, I did the interview when Paul Keating had been... Bob Hawke fired him off the front bench and he well, as treasurer and he was back on the on, on the back bench and he was out to pasture for a while and I had I had that interview. I'd been hassling his press secretary, I would say for months, six months, and he'd just laugh. Everyone was calling, of course. But um one day 
we spoke and he said, Hillary, you've got your interview. And it, so the first interview Keating did about that whole troubled time was with Ray on midday. And um, that was an amazing day because I remember the limo pulled up at Channel 9 and he got out of the car. There was 60 minutes. There were four corners. There was ABC News. There was Nine News. There was SBS News. Everyone had come and he got out and in, with his wonderful Keating charisma looked at me and said, you must be Hillary. And sort of we linked arms and walked in and <laughs> I was sold. Away from all the yeah, other cameras who were trying to others, get a yeah, grab. Completely ignored them. We walked into Channel 9. I just, anyway, that was a good day. Look at that. Six, yeah. six months and everybody yeah. else was hassling, but he gave it to you. Yeah. Well, wow. he gave it to Ray. To Ray. He gave but it you to were Ray. a part of it. Yeah. Ray wasn't was calling every day. I was a part of it. But Ray got the interview and that was, that was you know, they were fun. Wow. And that was the day following the punch up. I know I've told you about this. Also. Well, we haven't talked about <laughs> so, that on this show because I was going to try to get you towards that. As a segment producer on uh, as a segment producer on the midday show, you produced a segment that was possibly the most repeated of all the guests that came on that show. It's possibly the most watched or repeated or memorable moment from that show. Um, possibly, yeah. I mean, it was it was the raging um, republic debate at the time, and. We, Whether we as a country should we uh, as a country should we become a republic, yeah. or were we going to remain part of the United Kingdom and well under the rule of of you know the royal family or to grow up have and an Australian a as, a, as a head of yeah. state versus yeah. a yeah that's right country, so yeah. um, anyway it was a rather dry topic I think my boss thought it was a very dry topic and in order to do it properly you would have had to have given over you know, a good half hour of the show to this debate. You couldn't do it in one segment in eight minutes. But we happened to be, find ourselves in a position where we were down three, four segments, like half the show was empty the day before. <laughs> and I remember sitting in our production meeting and he said, Burnsy, Gary Burns, um, who became head of sport at nine, and he was the EP of midday. And he said, H, you've got your debate. So um, myself and another producer um, put together a group of people, and it kept growing, and we had people on both sides. I'm just trying to remember them all. Um, but we kept, we had sort of two on each side. We thought, well, we've got to have two on each side. And then someone would say, I think we had um, someone said, well, Normie Rose singing, and we needed another, um, we need another royalist. And Normie Rose, as it turned out, we had three on one side, and we needed another royalist. And so Normie was singing on the show, and. So we went down to him and said, would you be part of the debate? And he said, yeah, of course. So he completed the, the, the side, the third, you know, Normally the third was a, person. He was, a, he was a singer. But he also, he famously went, he went to Vietnam. He went to Vietnam, he yeah. He fought, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, we had three on each side. I'm just trying to, you know, to remember who was there. But obviously Ron Casey was, um, was, was one it, of the Republicans. Wasn't he the... We had, we had the Ron's head of job? the RSL. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah. Ron was a radio, long-term journalist and radio announcer. Yeah. And uh, we had Geraldine Do, we had Ron Casey, and see, this is where... I'm getting old. Off 50 squ- no, no, <laughs> but, you, um, you can't remember everyone that you ever did. It's okay. It's like um, whole, we had, whole segments of my career. I had. We had Diana recall. Fisher, who was a well-known royalist at the time, and we had um, the head of the RSL, and we had Normie. They were the royalists. Anyway, we um, we started the debate, and I was up in the sound. Um, with the sound engineer taking phone calls, live calls from people, putting them through um, as we saw fit. And suddenly uh, we looked down through the window into the studio and there's this scuffle happening and, you know, Normie taking a swing at Ron and Ron taking a swing back. Well, actually, I think Ron actually threw the punch because he, he was a boxer going back in his youth. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was a crazy time and it got... You know, it got front page of the papers all around the world. I mean, the bizarre thing is that it it was front page in Portsmouth where my grandparents lived um, as well as, you know, so they were reading about their producer daughter, front page of their local paper paper as well as in Sydney. Anyway, it was quite, it it was a full on time and then, as I said, the next day went on to do this interview with Paul Keating. So they were highlights. did, Did he call you the day before? What did he call you the morning of? Oh, no, we, that was lined up. That was lined oh, up sort okay. of, you know, probably a few days earlier, I'd say, oh, right. earlier in the week, yeah. Still, though, yeah. what an incredible week to go to work. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think our ratings skyrocketed because we got the punch-up caused, you know, I, I don't know what the ratings were in, the, you know, in terms of um, how we measure it today, but it was, I remember Burnsy put a, 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 a you know piece of paper up on the wall saying we rated twenty one or whatever. So in today's language, it would have been we would have got up to a million, you know, in the millions or mm. for midday we got a huge rating. Yeah. And then of course that spilled into the next day with Keating giving yeah. us the lowdown on what had happened between him and Bob. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I miss Paul Keating. So I, do I. I miss oh. having leaders like that. You know, I, I really miss having having leaders that weren't. Yeah, sure, he was argumentative, but he was funny to watch. Well, witty, witty and fun, yeah, all, yeah. all that. And, and, and smart, you know, yeah, intelligent. Very yeah. clever. He wasn't like Abbott or even Turnbull. When I watched Turnbull tear strips off shortness, like, you're just putting on a show. You don't have it in your heart. You're just making this stuff up to try and make the backbenchers get excited. I, I, I would love to... F- talk with Paul Keating one day. I'd oh, yeah, you should. to talk to him. What an incredible guy. And, and his career after politics, I think, has been really interesting as well and the way he's, you know, the way he conducts himself. And the way he com- – I, he follow, I follow him on Twitter. He's brilliant to follow him on Twitter. You know, whether you agree with him or not, the way he just talks about things, it's just – I miss that. I miss that kind of – it's an intelligent jab at someone. Not mm. just like a partisan jab at someone. Yeah, not a low slug. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's an aspirational side to him that, um, you know, whether you're interested in some of his in in architecture in 
in beautiful antiques or clocks as he was, and I remember talking to him about. But you, I, res- I respect and I love the fact that he's got rich richness to his life, mm. that he, um, he's always striving to understand more about the world and... and yeah. Anyway, I, I don't think I said that very well, but... No, 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 you did, <laughs> Hillary. Stop it. Um, so it would be remiss to not talk about the culture at Channel 9 at the time because it is so in the news at the moment, um, a long way from the feminist marches that you'd you know, been involved with 10 years beforehand. Even me, as a, as a grown man, turning up, I think I did an interview with Kerry ann early in the idle days or when we were still at Channel V. I remember showing up to Channel 9 and there was just something in the air that reminded me of that rugby school that I went to. I was like, wow, this, right, this is a, a different, different place. Because Channel V, where I'd been, where I was, was mostly women. And just, a, you know, on camera and a few editors and a producer or two were men. Everybody else was women. Um, including my boss. And I did notice that Net Channel 9 was a really different feeling in the air and the way people moved and talked. You know, it was just an un- unspoken thing. What Was that culture evident when you got there? Well, look, uh, it's a blokey place, that's for sure. But, you know, when I, I say that, there are a lot of blokes there that I really, uh, who are good mates and sure. who, I really, who I really like and respect and I personally never – it's interesting. In that time when I worked on Midday, I felt very um, – I felt quite supported. There were a lot of women in our production team um, and it ended up being myself and another woman who was sort of the two ICs by the time I finished there. So um, – but, you know, I think people talk about it was another era and that's for sure it was – but some of the, you know, there were there were wonderful executives there at the time, like David Lyle um, and Peter Meakin and people like that who you knew um, were had a very balanced approach to um, their jobs and to the sexes and would give anyone a go and were just fantastic executives. So that's my most of my experience was in that environment. But you know. I went back then. I did leave and go to Channel 7 for a while and I did go back to 9. Um, so there's a gap there which is we might get to in this conversation but maybe not. But when I went back, I was I ended up on the third floor, as they called it, the, the third floor, getting in that lift and going up to the third floor. <laughs> and that was a really different experience for me. I mean, there was another, there was a head of drama who was female but... I did end up at one of the great Elliston think tanks, which is Elliston was Kerry Packer's polo property. Um, I think it's down in the Hunter. I don't know. I got into a bus and we drove a long way. Yeah, right. (laughs) So, but it's an amazing property. And I was down there with a lot of executives at the time. So that would have been in the early or the mid 2000s, so maybe 2005-ish. And I was the only woman amongst 30 executives and that was interesting to me, that we had all our EPs of top shows, you know, at the time. So shows like The Block and, um, oh, I'm just trying to think of the programs that were on, This Is Your Life, and there were a lot of lifestyle shows at that time. Um, some great people, like fantastic guys. Some of them are great mates and, and I still work with. But I was the only woman, and I remember one of the senior executives saying, this is, Hillary's the only woman, you know, we need to change that. 
And um, there was a, a comment made, well, if they, they'll be here if they deserve, you know, if they deserve to be here, if they should be here, if they show that they... But the thing is, it showed a bit of a lack of understanding to me and that balance is really important um, to have voices of both men and women, you know, to have voices of different cultures, you know, straight, gay, whatever, but we need to hear everyone and particularly the sexes. I mean, it's the very basic <laughs> divide, if you like, say divide, but the very sort of yin-yang of life. And I thought that was very telling and when you go, it, and that sort of goes back to that culture at nine, um, Every production team I've ever been involved in, I would try, if I felt like it was being outweighed one way, try and balance it up the other. And I talk to people about this now. I think it's really important if you're making reality television that you have both male and female voices. And once you start weighing it too far one way, it just doesn't, it doesn't have the same, um, the whole is not the same. And you, and you want to try and get to that, to, to a, a culture within a production where, um, it, it feels whole and it's happy and it's nurturing and, you know, it's balanced, I guess. And to me that's the fundamental basis of being balanced. It solves a lot of brain. problems uh, in, and, in and of itself, just having uh, a balanced team. It solves, like, they'll, they'll be here if they deserve it is not something that would have been said on a bus of half men and half women. There's no way. I don't care how many you know, holiday houses you've got or how big an executive you are. You're not going to say that if you're in 30 people and there's 15 of them are women. There's no fucking way you're going to say that. No. And, and there were women who wanted to be there and who had been working at nine for a long time and had a lot of experience who weren't. And, and so it's telling to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope it's changing and I think it probably is because, again, that was 10, oh, 15 years ago anyway. But, you know, um, it was a bit disappointing to me yeah. that, it, that I was the only one. I mean, yeah. I shared with one of the executive's assistants because she was the only other woman who was there. She had a room. <laughs> I shared a room for the, for the workshop, you know, and uh, here we were. We were all walking off and having... You know, um, it, was a, it was a think tank, so we were coming up with new shows, new ideas for that time, but how can you do that if you don't have that, you know, equal representation? You, you can't. And, and also what? women are kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's well known that women do tend to control the dials on the TV set <laughs> yeah. without, without wanting to, you know. But and it, I was, that was my next question. It was like, and let me just... May I ask, what demographic were they aiming for when they were trying to come up with these shows on the whiteboard? It's got to have to. It would be what? Channel 9 back then would be, what, 25 to 55 women, right? Absolutely, yeah. 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 And how many? One so in the whole kind room. Of, it was kind of odd and bizarre and a bit weird. But, you know, having said that, like I said to you, I, I'm, I have, there, there were fantastic people, there still are there, mm. who I really respect. Yeah. So, did you ever have any run-ins with the bloke that's in the news at the moment, our Don Burke? No, no, I'd never had any run-ins with him. But um, I was told on my first day at Channel 9, beware the gardener. And I thought, I walked, because, you know, Channel 9, just for people that don't know, um, in Sydney is, uh, has, is surrounded the actual building or network there and 
in our time and is surrounded by cottages that, that were bought up and owned by the network and all the programs were in different cottages and we were in one in Scott Street. Anyway, I was a young, eager um, researcher segment producer and anyway, I was given those words, beware the gardener, and I walked out the back into the garden and thought it was the bloke trimming the hedges. I thought, oh, <laughs> anyway, read into that what you will. <laughs> well, we, yeah, it's, I think it's fairly evident <laughs> what, they were trying to, what they were trying to say at the time. As you, as you rose, you know, through, um, through through the ranks, you ended up in a, in a very high-profile job uh, at ITV, which is one of the, um, the big production houses, a British production house that has an office here. Um, as you rose through those ranks, um, you know, and I'm interested to know because you're, you know, you're an executive. Is it like when I go for a job, I say yes, I can do it, even though I know I can only do about eighty percent of it, and I'm going to fake the last twenty? Um, is it the same thing when you get to that level? You know, I think there's probably a bit of that in in all jobs. You know, when you you've been you've got the comfort factor of of what you know to, how to do and and then you move i mean look i was lucky because there were people that i'd worked with before and the guy running itv at the time i'd worked with at nine and we had a good relationship and we come up through the ranks together anyway on midday so he um he knew i was free and i guess felt i'd be a, a, you know a positive addition to the company and it was kind of small company at the time it was called granada and uh they only had, they probably only had about four shows, including Dancing with the Stars, and he wanted to, to you know, open that up and develop the slate of shows, and so I came in to run development at that point, but um, very quickly um, EP'd a show for them because in the end, if you get a show up, who's going to EP it? Yeah. <laughs> so I was there and I ended up EPing a show called Australian Princess um, before I really got my you know, my teeth stuck into development. Mm. And, and actually that's one of the highlights of my career is some of, are some of the shows we developed at ITV um, that then flew on Network 10 in particular. Such as? Talking about your generation with Sean McAuliffe. Um, I worked with Sean at nine. I'd, I'd EP'd the Logies that he hosted in 2001. I mean, I'm very, that's very clearly marked in my mind. <laughs> and... Uh, that was uh, that was a great experience working with him because he's just such a incredible human being, yeah. um, such a, an amazing brain, and uh, so so just surprising and um, well wonderful to yeah. work with. Just he's really wonderful. I mean, like no my, one else. He's one of my heroes. For not only has he had this incredible career, and he's so so smart. If if people listening want to go and do it, um, what was his bloody name? The New Zealander that ran did a breakfast show on Channel Ten for a while. Um, remember the before Wake Up? They did a channel. They did I a remember. Breakfast show? Yeah, um, I can't remember his name. Uh, but Sean McAuliffe came on as a guest. And have you seen this? Okay, Sean McAuliffe comes on as a guest to plug my gen, and. It's, you know, it's a very formal kind of breakfast morning show. Hey, it's uh, 7.26 and uh, tonight at uh, 6.30 you'll see on this network, Network 10, a uh, brand new game show starring Sean McAuliffe. And he basically just throws every single rule of being a guest on a show like this out the window and completely takes it over, starts wandering around the set, starts looking at people, starts taking headsets off people, starts turning bits of the set over, starts asking questions, goes and sits in the same shot as the host. And this is like a guy who's he's 
basically, it almost looked like a Python skit, what he was doing. And it was so brilliant how he was just pointing out the absurdity of what the hell was happening. And this, the segment ends up going for like 12 minutes because, you know, it's probably it's a breakfast TV show. It's probably only supposed to be five at the max or six at the max. And it is fucking amazing watching him do it. I'll have to see it. That's, it sounds fantastic. He, start, he gets on a four-wheeled chair and he gets on his knees and he starts rolling himself around in the back of the couch. <laughs> You know, that sounds so – it's so him. Yeah. It was oh, it was so, so good. When you – I've just got to ask now because there were some blurry years for me there. Did I do a pilot for you at that point? Did we do – We did – Takeaway? Takeaway. We – Did I meet yes. you then? You did meet me. Oh, fuck. Yeah, we came into 10. We came into 10 and did some auditions and – um, you and James, yeah. we we had um, host a you know like a, a shortened version. So it was mm. I think we condensed it down to about five segments mm. of, of takeaway Saturday night takeaway, which is a big ITV show in oh, England. It's still my favourite show. Yeah, it's ever a great made, show. I would, I would do it should be on. It should be on Australian TV. I would do it anything should. to host it. Yeah. I would do anything and to get that show on TV. We need it's it's you know exactly what people get me want and to Grant to do it. Yeah, it'll be the greatest Grant. show on television. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, that's an interesting couple. <laughs> Would be brilliant. Yeah. Mm. He's, it'd be fantastic. But I, that's, that's wild. I remember doing that. I remember doing that pilot for you and watching, as I was getting ready for that pilot, watching Ant and Deck, which um, James and I were originally, when we started, Isla were brought on to replicate the success of, of Ant and Deck um, because we were a, not necessarily a team, but we hosted together a lot on Channel V. And I remember watching episodes of Saturday Night Takeaway um, getting ready to do that pilot and writing it and things like that. James and I were writing it and I was just thinking, like, this is the fucking coolest fun you could possibly have mm. live. Sorry I didn't remember that I met you then. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> I, I always thought you did remember. Sorry. Sorry. I remember doing the pilot. I remember meeting – was it your office at Fox Studios? Yeah, yeah. So I remember going in there but at the time, just at the time I was – terrified of strangers i was terrified of anyone i didn't know and yeah. you probably don't remember but i would go i would not make eye contact a lot and i would look elsewhere when people were talking to me and i was i was just i wouldn't leave the house much i would go three or four days without leaving the house if i wasn't working i was just terrified to walk out the door i was it was a bit weird for me uh, that's <laughs> before you left and went to la is that right uh, it must yes. have been yeah. yeah 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 it was right around there yeah yeah, when that because mm. sh- that show was like this will be the greatest thing ever, and I remember when it didn't get up, I was like, well, they're not going to go with this, and I'm not going to get because it's when Idol was like the biggest thing ever, and we were getting two point two, two point five on a Monday. You know, like what do you do next? What do you do after that? And then this show came along, I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And when that didn't get up, as every TV show that you see on television has probably forty that they tried to put that in that slot, so you go for more shows that never get made than ever do get made and that's just the job we do. I remember thinking, all right, I'll go give it a shot over there because they're not going to do this. And fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, fair enough. That was, mm. yeah. The development thing must have been super exciting, particularly working with MyGen, which is now now coming back, isn't it? It's on nine now, isn't it's it? It's on nine, which, yeah, I mean, I wish them all the best, of course, because <laughs> they're my mates and, uh, you know... Um, I would always – Sean's fantastic. So to have him on television in any shape or form yeah. is great. Um, but I do – we developed that um, at ITV, three of us, and it was great because Sean hadn't done other people's work. 
I mean, his programs, the programs he'd been in to date um, were of his own making, his own idea, his own premise. His, he, he writes most of it. He's, he's the consummate every... I mean, he directs, produces, writes, <laughs> performs, you know, he, he does it all. So for him to trust us and come and host that show was a big thing. And uh, he and I had had the experience of the Logies and also... McAuliffe Tonight, Tonight Show on Nine, when I was head of entertainment there. So we had a relationship and I think, and he trusted, well, he and I trusted each other and do. And so he came and did Generation and it was really fantastic because it brought him to a whole broad commercial audience, which some people, some executives at, you know, networks that shall remain nameless, (laughs) didn't believe he 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 could do that or he would work on a commercial network and it proved them wrong mm. in a big way. And you made... <laughs> and that is one of my... I mean, not not just proving someone wrong, but just the fact that obviously Sean would, you know, would appeal yeah. wherever. It's, it was just finding the right touch, start, finding that, that special place and letting his magic come out, you know, just... just Live basically, and not just Sean, not just Sean. The the the, the panelists that you had, mm. superstars. Yeah, now. Amanda Keller, Charlie Pickering, and Josh Thomas. Superstars. The three of them, all of them. That you know, Amanda had obviously ha- had been around for a long time and very well respected. But Amanda in that role on Generation was fantastic. Um, the baby boomer, the sort of mum figure, if you like. I mean, I say that loosely, but but in terms of how they all interacted. And and then Charlie, who went on to do big things at 10 and the ABC, and Josh, who's mm. become, you know... Megastar. Um, please like me. Yeah, it's become yeah. enormous. And so, yes, all of them, that, that show launched new, you know, new yeah. careers. Or, how does that, does that make you feel? What's well, it make you feel like great. when you see I mean, yeah. it, it's amazing. To me, that's the best thing about being in this business. And... Like you said, you know, there are many ideas, many, and to get an idea up is incredibly difficult and thousands fall to the wayside compared to the one that gets up. So to be involved in one that got up, not only got up, but the next day we woke up and it got 1.6 million. For that era, again, 2000, you know, whenever that was, I think it was about around about 2009, um, was, fan, you know, we pinched ourselves. We said, wow, great. people loved it. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was a joy to make. You know, again, to, going back to the whole thing about balance and a fantastic production team. I mean, I'm, I, I, it's a family. It really is, and you know this, Osha, because you've had many of your own. And if you've got to nurture them, you know, you've got to nurture the family. Everyone needs a voice, and it was a happy, buoyant production team, and they made a happy, buoyant, joyful show. And to me, that's what I love about the business when it buzzes, and when you've got a great. Um, energy that just takes a life of its own and that was one of them and yeah that's for me why I'm in it yeah um your role now at channel 10 network 10 um which is the network that I've worked on since 2003 there's a few years in the middle there that were they chose not to employ me for some reason (laughs) uh your your role is is the network executive producer for uh, a lot of the shows that that run that's right so in the past you were the um production houses executive producer and the commissioning network will provide one as well to make sure like so you're the 
when you're in the production house, whether it be ITV or Fremantle or Warner Brothers in the case of The Bachelor, there's a, net, there's a production house executive who goes, this is the show we've decided to make and this is the idea we have and we're going to keep this solid. And then there's a network who goes, well, we're paying for it and <laughs> we know our audience pretty well, so let's just make sure it fits. Uh, and so that's your job now. Yeah, that's right. So you oversee heaps of shows. Um, why in your – and you've, we've had a few years to think about it now. Why do you think – why do you think a show like Bachelor or Bachelorette works so well? Look, you know, I've I have said this in a couple of interviews, but but not broadly, um, and it's worth going back to it. And it goes back to my social anthropology degree. Um, something I hung on to there was, you know, the sort of the the, the kind of four pillars of life: <clears throat> food, shelter, warmth, and love, and you know, that these, these are the things that, are in that order, are, are important for life to exist as a human being. So, and without them, you die. Um, so, for me, I, I look at television and what resonates, and I say, well, yeah, there's plenty of cooking shoe, shows <laughs> we need to eat. We love eating. It's one of the great delights. We love growing it and eating it and finding new ways to, you know, to make it People to wonderful. eat it with to people to eat it with, yeah. So we've got that covered. Shelter, well, you know, we we can't seem to get away from, from those shows that work about our houses and, and how we make them work for us and make them wonderful and, you know. Hilary, of all um, the things that were on my Foxtel waiting for when we got back, the first show I watched, love it or list it. Love that show. It's a good show. Yeah, it's a good show. I love it too. And, uh, and you know, so food, shelter, warmth, well, that just comes down to being you know, human being and, and, and the basics. But love, love is the fourth and love is, we all want it. We all want love. Um, we all are fascinated by it. We're all, we all have multiple relationships. Our lives are built on the fabric of those. Um, we all look for love from the time we're born and we hope to go out surrounded by it. So I, for me, it doesn't surprise me that a show which, you know, in terms of The Bachelor is one of the original shows about love. It goes back some, I think it's about 15 years ago when, when this came out of the reality boom, but was the first of the shows about love. I mean, we've had them in the past. We've had blind dates and we've had perfect matches, but, you know, more, more entertainment-based. And I'm not saying this isn't, but in the end, it is the search for love and the journey for love. And we... Um, we're fascinated by it because we thread it back to our own lives and how we would be or how we would feel or is that the way we love? And there's a lot of shared experience to be got. Um, not to say we don't have a lot of laughs and a lot of tears and a lot of awkward moments along the way, but, hey, that's life. Mm. So for me, I think it comes down to to that, that it's just that, shared human experience and we, we we want it and we seek it and so it fascinates us. Yeah. Um, and I'm so happy that we've got the chance now to make The Bachelor in Paradise because as much as I love The Bachelor and Bachelorette and I do that one woman or one man's journey, I think Bachelor in Paradise is just fantastic in that we can, we've got, there, there are multiple choices and, and it gives us a whole new energy and dynamic as people will see next year. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really excited. I know you are too. I, look, I knew, 
and you we were there together on the first week like, we knew by day three like holy shit we've got a hit this is gonna be good we sure did <laughs> <laughs> day three of like a 28 day shoot we're like wow this is amazing what's gonna happen this is going that was also off. really exciting uh the, i was talking i was talking about this the other day um that in the same way that sport is so successful on television or you know just generally they don't build you know, 20 seater stadiums, they build 20,000 seater stadiums, 100,000 seater stadiums. In the same way that sport is successful, because we identify with that particular team, and then when that team has victory, we feel we, we feel the victory and when that team has failure, we feel the failure and in the same way we like to experience that. And then that kind of went to like, for example, with Australian Idol, um, yes, there's that victory and yes, there's that thing, but those first couple of episodes where the train wrecks happen, gave people the opportunity to experience, let's say it, failure, even possibly humiliation without actually having to be there. You know, they can experience, they can go through those feelings, right? And yet then then we come to a show like Bachelor and we're able to then, there's something about the casting, which is, that's well, that's another two-hour conversation. Casting of reality shows is is extraordinarily difficult and it's very hard to get right. And when you do get it right, it's amazing. But there's something in each and every one of our cast that I feel that when people watch it, there's something that, oh, yeah, that reminds me of myself or that reminds me of my friend. And there's the opportunity to experience or at least associate with that joy or that sadness. I mean, you know, we have these mirror neurons in our brains when someone over there yawns, I yawn too. I might not even know them. I'm sitting on a train, but they yawn, I yawn. You know, it's what we we are creatures. And then, like, it's it's so there's something about wanting to experience those emotions, even though you might not be in a relationship at that point in time, or you might be in one that doesn't have the dramatic ups and downs that we show on this television, this ramped up version of what happens. Um, there's something about that that people get to experience that in the safety of their homes with their friends. And it's, it's lovely. You know, it's lovely. For, for me, the, the favourite part about it, I love working with a team and that's, that's the best part about it. You know, get, we get to be in this finely tuned orchestra. Uh, you know, if one of the lighting things isn't working, the whole shoot has to stop, all right? And it, it, it might be the 20-year-old assistant who's it's the first ever gig. But, you know, if they don't get it right, no, no one can get it right. And it might be like yourself or Sean, something's not working. Okay, nothing can work. Everyone has to work together. Um, you know, in the same way, I also love that come transmission, come TX, come when we show the show, the amount of photos I get, people send me on Instagram or Twitter, people don't watch it by themselves. People watch it at least two, if not more, sometimes five, sometimes 20 people in a living room. They watch this together and they yeah. enjoy it together. Yeah, I know. And, and, and people that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. One, one, of the, um, one of the carers that comes to my house came down when uh, The Bachelorette started and sh- she'd come from the War Vets, um, which is a you know, retirement village on the northern beaches, and she had a client who was in her early 90s, I think about 93, and she said she was getting herself ready and her piggies in blankets or, you know, her, her hors d'oeuvres and her little cakes and things ready. And, and she said, what are you getting ready for? And she said, oh, it's The Bachelorette tonight. It's, the, it's, it's episode one and my neighbour's coming in who's 87 <laughs> and we're, gonna, we're having a party. So, yeah, people watch it together. So... And surprisingly, 
older people and surprisingly quite young. I mean, it's got a very broad audience. Um, and I think that's lovely. I love it. Yeah. You know, it's one of the most talked about shows. I mean, I feel really privileged to be part of it. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, it's a very, um, it's a wonderful group and I, I'm, it never fails to surprise you how emotional it can be. I mean, we all cry at the end. <laughs> I've shed a lot of tears on this show. <laughs> yeah, if, I, if people only knew that, you know, in the finale moments, without a shadow of a doubt, every finale, every time. Yeah, tears of sadness, tears of joy, usually joy. There's something great I also <laughs> love, and I'm, and I'm really happy to always talk about this, is that pretty much with The Bachelor in Paradise is a bit different because we had a couple of guys involved, but pretty much every talent producer, every person that's working with the one of the story team, everyone that's working with the cast, our uh, story producers, the, the show producers, our director, all women. And um, it makes me, I'm just so happy that, you know, if people just only knew how much care is taken of, you know, these people who are coming to us, hopefully to fall in love, but are trading their emotional reactions as currency that we are going to film to make this TV show, how much care we take for them around that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, no, we, we, we do. Duty of care is huge. And um, the fact that they, you know, people as much as they think they know what it's like to be on a reality TV show, they don't. I mean, how could you know what it's like to be living in lockdown for some, you know, months of your life and surrounded by cameras and exposing your, well, your emotions? You know, um, it's a generation that's obviously been brought up with social media and they are a lot more savvy and savvy to it. And, and many obviously, you know, want to be on it because they know, they know the buttons to push and they know how to, hmm. you know, uh, they're thinking about the long-term benefits for themselves, etc. But, you know, equally there are people who are just on it um, because they really, I mean, genuinely want to find love. And, I mean, I say hmm. that um, about all, you know, all the people we hope and we, we really try to weed that out, that, that regardless of personality type, that they do want to find love, mm. that that is the number one important thing to them. But um, the fact is they're still um, they're, they're human beings that we have to care for very deeply and we make sure they're supported all the time. Mm. Um, and for eight years know, after the show Yeah, wraps. you know, yeah. They, they, they have access to counsellors and psychologists and anyway, um, yeah, I, I, that's a big as you say, is important and mm. right across the board. We take, you know, a lot of care about that. Yeah. And, yeah, the, the, and particularly after this intense shooting period that we've just done, how do I put this? Yes, coming on a reality show now doesn't, it didn't when I first started in reality in 2003, but coming on a reality show now does bring with it exposure on primetime television and on, on that, it, you know, can inflate. Uh, your social media um, exposure, which can, if you play it right, can lead to an income independent of any other gigs you might get. Yes, there are people that come in sometimes with a bit of that. Not 100%, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go do this. It might be good for the Insta, yeah. Watching these people, I'm going to use the word, watching these people go through the journey and seeing that, element of what first got them in fade away and then be replaced by, oh, I'm really falling for this girl. 
or I'm really falling for this guy. And then come to the end and be like, oh, man, I'm just, I love this person. It's so nice. <laughs> oh, it, yeah, it's, it, it's, it absolutely is. It's what, it's, it's the essence of what it, the show's about in the end. Yeah. And it, and it is. And, and them drop their, you know, drop their layers or their guards or whatever, and, as they do, because, um, you know, the, the, the process encourages that. Mm. And, yeah, having seen it just recently um, with, with quite a few people, has been fantastic, really wonderful. Yeah. People that you thought you knew or you thought were a bit hard to that and yeah. actually they're not underneath it once that's dropped. Yeah. For whatever reasons we carry out, we've got our guards. We all have them in different ways, yeah. you know, and um, like you said, going back to your earlier, not, not being able to look at people or whatever. I mean, but, you know, just the shields we put up and, um, yeah, we've just seen a lot of that and I, I feel... That, I love the show. I think it's great for that. This one in particular. Mm. Oh, I think people are gonna people are gonna love it. It's um, there is something else I, I did want to talk about, but you did mention it. Um, and if, if you're if you don't want to talk about that, it's fine. But you did mention you did mention the word carer. Can we talk about? Yeah, that? we can absolutely. We can. No, I'd love to. All right then. So let's let's talk about why why is it that you need a carer to come to your house? Well, I well my I, my partner who um, uh, was a musician. Well, I guess he still is, but he can't, just can't play now. Was diagnosed with a degenerative brain condition. About we're getting into now, now nearly seven years. So he actually was a playing keyboard player um, and uh, also composer. And he and I had actually done a few a few shows together. You know, he composed the music for. So um, anyway, that's by the by. But, but you've been together what? We've been together for twenty. About twenty three years now. Uh-huh. He's a, he's a um, working musician, which is hard to do yeah. in this country, um, yeah. where we don't have like a thriving theatre scene or a thriving Broadway scene or something. No, like that. No, but he was in a lot of early theatre in the seventies. Yeah. You know, with Reg Livermore, Betty Blockbuster, uh-huh. um, quite a few of those shows, and also um, toured with people like was on Peter Allen's last tour when Peter was diagnosed with cancer. Um, Shirley Bassey, he supported anyway. He, he's he's been around mm. and a working musician for a long time. Anyway, he was diagnosed with MSA, which is multi-system atrophy. It's a, it's the, the cerebellum is deteriorating and no one knows. It's one of those diseases that they don't know how he got it and they don't know there's no cure. There's, there's nothing you can do really. You just watch someone basically over a period of seven or so, eight, nine years, deteriorate. So he's in a wheelchair now and he's, he can't speak. It, it affects uh, the neurological pathways for your autonomic system. So everything you do, you know, his brain functions perfectly, but he's kind of getting locked in. That's how one of our doctors described it, so that he, he won't be able to speak eventually and won't be able to move. So, yeah, we're, we're um, I'm kind of his chief carer, although I'm very careful to remember that first I'm his partner. But we have carers, three carers come to our house every day um, and help us just get through, mm. help Jamie get dressed, shower, you know, he can't get food himself or anything like that. So we rely on carers for mm. all that how, and for me to keep working. So if you, can't, if you can't speak, how do you communicate? He, I can understand him still. It's just because of, um, you know, the damage, it's hard for him to make words and the sounds are becoming more and more distorted. 
we literally, I just got home in time to, we're doing an eye gaze technology trial for the next month. So that's literally a computer screen that's going to get connected to his wheelchair. And you, as your eyes literally gaze at the letters, an electronic voice speaks the words that you're creating. So we're going to do that because that's very, you know, that's obviously crucial that I can understand what he wants and how he's feeling in this this chapter of his illness we're going into now. Mm. Um, you know, it's going to be the toughest one because he won't be able to move at all within the next year or two. It's hard to say. I mean, how long's a piece of string? But that's how it ends, mm. you know. So um, it's really important that you can communicate. Is he in pain? No, no pain at all. Just uh, just slow, slow, and you know, um, I mean, I, a funny story. It's funny because hey, what it's else the are you way life do? is. What, yeah. what else are you going to do? Laughter is. They say it's the, the biggest cliche, the best medicine, but it's true. But I mean, I was on a conference call the other day, and uh, at home, and uh, I heard Jamie fall out of the wheelchair. It sounds bad, but it, look, it was a small fall, but a thud on the floor. And I went in. I'm trying to while I'm doing this conference call with, like, a research company and some other executives at ten, and trying to pull Jamie up. And and you know, if anyone who's tried to do that, that it, it's a, it's a dead weight you're pulling up. Anyway, it was just funny because. And I'm thinking to myself, Hillary, put the put the mute button on, put the mute button on, because I could hear the lady at the other end go, "Hello, what? What's happening?" I, finally, I twigged. You know, it takes a while for the synapses to work, but yeah, mute it anyway. But just yeah, you got to laugh. It's um keeps us going. Yeah. So is he? Like, can he use his hand? He can't use his hands. He can't text no, or anything can, like that. No, he, he um his iPad is his you know his go to device, and he can still pretty well um get words out and he has a speech app on his iPad but he does speak and I can understand him mm. 50% of the time but sometimes we have to work through it what subject are we talking about you know we have to really I have to go back to basics to get to where he wants to get in the mm. conversation well yeah yeah what is that I mean there's there'll be people listening who it might not be MSA, but it might be another diagnosis of like. In the, my my dad used to say this um, uh, as a rheumatologist, he would you know again it's an incurable condition you can only manage it. Um, Dad's words which always resonated with me it was like, I'd ask him. I used to ask him, what do you say to people? How do you break the news? And he goes, well, I say, look, these things happen. They're nobody's fault. The best thing you can do is accept that it's happening and then figure out what you're going to do now that it is. And that's, and you know, and I'll never forget that because like that has put me through like, like mum's own diagnosis and, 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 and treatment and, and when I lost mum to that. And, but nine years ago, when you first started noticing something is a bit off, when they finally went, oh, it's this, what does that, what does that do to, to a relationship? You've been with someone for 10 years, 11 years at that point. Mm. What, what, how do you, how do you hold your relationship together? Well, I guess you just um, go back to the fact that there's a deep love there and that's the, and it's become deeper. And I look at Jamie and I learn from him every day because in his the state that he's in of, um, you know, huge challenge, uh, he something is happening to him which is 
show his, his aura and his gentleness and his i guess it's his soul really is more is more visible and other people have mentioned this to me and i see it and it um it really has had a huge impact on me and it's helped me and it's people say this i've heard other people say this when they go through big challenges life challenges or um someone passing away you know and that it was a rich experience and i understand what that means now because it actually it is even though there's awful times you know ahead and there have been but there've also been really amazing times and we've done some amazing things together and i think um it's very it's completely changed our lives i feel i saw this documentary um with nick cave recently and he talked about losing his son his his and he talked about i mean it was the most devastating thing but he said i would go up to people or see them in um the supermarket people would say reach out to me and he said it was really lovely but i could see they were looking at me and thinking he looks the same he sounds the same he's the same and he said and i'm not the same on the inside i'm not the same person and that's how i feel and you know people say oh you're doing such a great job hillary you sound you're just the same and i think inside i'm not i'm really not i mean um and i don't actually know how to articulate that what that actually means but i do know that um on a deep level i'm becoming i i think a lot more compassionate and aware of uh basic human interactions not <laughs> i'm in the process of it so it's something that's happening um but i think it i know it's making me a better person and i'm not sure exactly what shape form or how that is how that will turn out but i'm very aware of that that's any an incredible way to look at it to look at it not as it's a thing happening to you you know to look at it as a, it's a thing happening for you that's extraordinary this is, you know that it's it's you know you should understand that not many people would be able to come to that well you know yeah i mean i think there are, there are others i mean i i talk to other people as soon as you start opening your mouth and talking and sharing those experiences it's amazing how many other people come up and say well here's my experience i mean i've had a couple of moments with you you know where there've been deep um important things discussed and it can be just a, not dwelling too long but you know i know you get it and mm. um i think those moments are the real they're the they're the real ones and they're the ones to hang on to um and you know i i treasure that mm. um i just hope and i don't i don't know i'd like to jump on the bandwagon of assisted dying i'm not saying right here and now but i mean i feel jamie and i hang on to g is that going to happen because we really want it to happen <laughs> because he might be in a situation he probably will be where he wants that choice and i feel like maybe there's something i can do in around there to lend my voice to that because it it's very sad that it didn't get through parliament or you know even uh recently and i just feel uh 
anyway, that's... Did you and he, did you talk about oh, it? Oh, we've spoken about it. Yeah, we have because, you know, we know that there'll be a period where he, that's enough when he can't move and you're lying in bed and you can't even speak. I mean, why would you, you know, there'll be a time and we know that. So, and I say to him, you know, he has a bad day and he says, I'm not very happy today in his funny voice now, which I can't, you know, but, and I get that. And I said, but you, you still have joy in your life, don't you? And he says, yes, you still have laughter in your life. You still want to be, you and I, I say, on our journey, on our path, you still want to do that. And he says, yes. And I said, well, there we go. So we, we're still, we're going and we're still, you know, there's a spark. We have a spark between us. We have a, you know, we laugh. We really laugh. <laughs> yeah. I... I couldn't agree with you more on that and certainly having seen my own mum go through it. I've, I've euthanised pets. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that were in a better shape mm. than she was. Everybody listening has. Mm. You know, we've, treated, we've all treated a pet with more compassion than we have the human. And it's, I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm 100% with you. And, and you know, if, if there was a way that we could do it, I would, you know... I don't, know, I don't know. You know, it's it's there's there's got to be there's got to be something. Mm. There's got got to be something. Um, but to to hear you talk about looking at this, which would possibly stop most people in their tracks and allow people to define themselves with this horrible thing is happening to me. The way that you're able to look at it and go, look how much I'm growing. Look, I'm. Our life is so much more rich now. It's it, it's it's incredibly inspiring, Hillary, to hear that. It's freaking awesome. Well, <laughs> thanks, Sasha. Thank you, thank you for to, saying to, that. To be able to you know have that as a lens, you know, and the filter through that you look at this experience that you're going through and that you shared it, you know, is 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 brilliant. Um, I have a as you know, I have a 13 year old stepdaughter. And uh, what would you say to her as a young woman about, you know, she'll be in the workplace in four years? What would you say to her about, you know, pursuing a career and pursuing what it is that she wants to do? Well, I'd say um, don't be scared to try different things. I don't think necessarily we all know uh, straight up what what it is that we want. I think you have to get out there and experience a few different things. I'd say be, understand that people really want problem solvers, people who are who are th trying, thinking ahead of the game, who are happy to do anything but, you know, be, um, just be there, be, be enthusiastic, be joyful um, and try and, see a problem before it comes turns up i mean these these are things that i say to people who want to come through in tv um just it's the ones that wait to be told what to do that often drag the chain i mean as we all know as you say it's it's that group group and one little thing it can be a runner who hasn't got something to the set on time that holds everything up yeah. so it's really it, it comes down to basics like that and understand that you're as important as everyone that you should always ask questions um, don't be frightened to ask questions. Put your hand up. We're all asking questions all the time. Even the people right at the top of so 
perceived to be right at the top of the tree, but they ask questions too and they need people to bounce off. So never be fearful. Don't be fearful. Hold on to your joy. Talk to people. Experience diversity. I mean, they're, they're things that I would pass on. Um, I think pretty well whatever you're in, whatever career you're in, but definitely in television, um, know that um, it's a really rich world and you can be part of it. Look for the people that, uh, you know, if, if you ever get a sense that you're not surrounded by that, put your hand up, leave. Don't, don't take negativity. Don't take unfairness. You know, ha- have a voice. Have a voice. It's scary to leave, though, sometimes. It's scary, yeah, mm. to leave your comfort zone. Mm. Oh, yeah, it is. It is. But I think when you do, um, another door opens. It always does. It's, uh, you know, it might seem bad for a moment or a day or a week or whatever, but inevitably it won't be. It really won't, you know. Um, I mean, you just have to have faith in that. I'm so grateful you came around today, Hillary. Oh, I'm. It's bright, it's wonderful to talk to you. I've been looking forward to it. I've really been looking forward to it. It's been a bit of a mystery package. What's going to happen oh. when I chat with Osha? <laughs> yeah, you were um, trying to pick my brain. What's going to come week. out? What yeah. are we going to talk about? Well, we were, well, don't worry, we'll get there. <laughs> Brilliant! Oh, I'm so happy. That's right. I'm so happy you came around. Um, well, I'm happy to. I'm really happy to have been here. It's great. Yeah. It's really great. My, I'm gonna quickly uh, take a photo of you that yeah, we can okay. use as the artwork. Yeah, and sure, have another okay. little cuddle with Frankie. We'll walk you down in the he, car. He's sleeping. Isn't yeah, he, he is. He's good. out now. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's been really quiet. He's good. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That was Hillary Innes. I am so, so grateful that Hillary came and made time in her very busy day to come out, sit around my kitchen table and have a conversation. Whatever you're doing this week, I hope it's great. If you need me, send us your email at gmail.com. And if you need to send me a photo of what you're doing while you're listening, I always get a kick out of it. I write back to everybody. Eh, I'm around. Send us your email at gmail.com. I didn't make this show by myself. Oh, no. This episode was made by some wonderful people. Audio production by Andy Marr. Uh, my show producer is Haley Van Spagna. And, of course, music production by Toe Hider. Look after yourself this week. Thank you so, so much. Uh, if you're going back to school this week, good luck. If your kids are back at school and you've got time to listen to podcasts, thumbs up. <laughs> Until we talk next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.